Holistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, your virtual host, uh, that is, there were some fellow saloners who made donations this past week to uh, help offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. And so I like to think of them as our virtual hosts this week. And uh, those good people are Yoshi N, Yuan M, and I hope I pronounced that right, uh, Zach M, and uh, Vladimir L, uh, whose generosity is such that... Uh, Vladimir, you should consider yourself all donated up for life. Uh, and that also goes for Evan H. from last week as well. And uh, all of you donors, uh, including our fellow saloners who are donating their time to help promote these podcasts on their own blogs and websites and among their friends, uh, all of you I, I owe a deep debt of gratitude to. And I, I thank you very much for helping uh, spread the word. And uh, I also don't want to forget to mention all of the other podcasts that uh, are so interrelated to the Salon. Uh, there are quite a few of them now, but right from the very beginning, uh, KMO of the Sea Realm podcasts and uh, the Dope Fiend and his affiliated podcasters uh, over at the Cannabis Podcast Network at dopefiend.co.uk, well, uh, they've all been a part of this ever-growing interconnected network of uh, the worldwide psychedelic community. That's uh, connecting more of us every day now. So a big thank you to our donors and uh, to you for helping us find the others. Uh, now uh, let's get on with the show, huh? Well, since we've kind of had a lot of the Bard McKenna lately, I thought that I would mix things up a little bit today and uh, play two shorter talks by two of our favorites here in the salon, Alan Watts and Sasha Shulgin. Now, uh, what do those two have in common, you might ask? Uh, one being a philosopher and the other being a scientist? Well, the answer, of course, is in uh, what Terence McKenna said in a recent podcast about the glue that holds our community together being an experience, the psychedelic experience. Which means, uh, in essence, that we all share a fascination with the investigation of the human experience through the aid of these uh, catalysts of consciousness, generally called psychedelics, and uh, if you've been with us since the beginning of these podcasts here in the salon, you have already heard some fascinating stories about both of these luminaries of the psychedelic community. And so I figured it's about time to uh, shine a little more light on them. And uh, we'll begin with Sasha. Uh, and what I'm about to play right now is actually available in video format on the MIT website, as well as on uh, EROC X1's blog, which is uh, where I came across it myself. So uh, thank you again, Erock X1, and uh, you can find his site, by the way, at erocx1, the number one, dot blogspot.com. Now, I realize that we have maybe heard a part of uh, some of these stories from Sasha before, but in my feeble attempt to preserve a few bits and pieces of the oral history of our tribe, I felt that uh, this talk is something that should be preserved uh, in thousands of other places besides that one server. Uh, places like your computer or your MP3 player. And uh, not just trust it to be uh, saved at one spot on the net. Now, as we listen to the introduction of Sasha in just a moment, uh, when the person doing the introducing is reading a piece about Sasha from the New York Times, 
pay close attention to the fact that this so-called paper of record was wrong in attributing the invention of the drug ecstasy to him. And even a cursory reading of the Arrowhead.org site will tell you the actual story of the invention of MDMA. So my point is that uh, you can't trust even the well-established news organizations to get all of their facts right. So uh, check things out for yourself before you pass along stories that, uh, while they may have the ring of truth about them, are actually incorrect. Always check your sources. And uh, my source for the chemistry of the psychedelic experience is the one and only Sasha Shogun. So uh, let's travel back in time to December 1st of 2005 and join Sasha as he speaks at a conference at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology that was titled, Expand Your Mind, Getting a Grasp on Consciousness. Our first speaker studies consciousness by altering it. Dr. Alexander Shulgin is a chemist and an author. He's also known as uh, Dr. X. The New York Times calls Dr. Shulgin a one-man psychopharmacological research sector. Um, Timothy Leary called him one of the century's most important scientists. Uh, by Shulgin's own account, he has created nearly 200 psychedelic compounds, among them stimulants, depressants, aphrodisiacs, empathogens, convulsants, drugs that alter hearing, drugs that slow one's sense of time, I'm reading from the New York Times article, drugs that speed it up, drugs that trigger violent outbursts, drugs that deaden emotion. In short, a veritable, veritable lexicon of tactile and emotional experience. Uh, many of these drugs, perhaps all of them, he has tested out on his, himself and his wife, um, with a few friends included at times. Um, and in addition to inventing the drug ecstasy, Dr. Shulgin is a consultant, uh, very much in demand, uh, for by an eclectic group of clients that include NASA, Bristol Laboratories, NIH, University of California, uh, for his view on how to how to experience consciousness and what consciousness is, please welcome Dr. Alexander Shulgin. Don't tell him I use his name, Alexander. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here and a great honor to be here. Uh, I'm not a great lover of micro... Was it micro point? Uh, magic PowerPoint. PowerPoint. Had I known that you were going to have a PowerPoint availability here, I probably would not have used it anyway, because every time I've tried using it, about 30% of the time at least, it fails, it falls apart somehow, it never quite gets to where I want to go. So I, I, rather than put a lot of chemical structures, which would be boring to about 80% of the audience and fascinating to the other 20%, I suspect, uh, I'll just use my hands and wave my hands as is appropriate. Uh, I mean, molecules obviously are, you know, rings and chains and nitrogens, and there's no problem about that at all. Um, my interest in the area, actually, this is, this is a, a, a nice opportunity. I spent a couple of years of my life upriver, uh, some, oh, 60 or so years ago, more than that, at Harvard, where I uh, had the unfortunate pleasure of having a national scholarship, which got me in there free. And uh, I found that everyone else had parents who had enough money to get them in there, having paid their way. And I could find very little rapport with the masses of freshmen that were around me. So I found it much more pleasurable to go in the Navy and spend three years in the Atlantic in the anti-submarine patrol, which 
actually gave me a very nice beginning on chemistry in that one of the um, books I had with me was a book by Paul Carrer, a Swiss chemist, written about 1938 or 1940. And it was a complete statement statement of the uh, subtleties and the complexities of organic chemistry. And when you're spending three years uh, in the Atlantic waiting for submarines, you have a lot of time spare. And I not only read the book, but substantially understood it. And uh, it was a very, very great pleasure to get out of the Navy and back into the university at Berkeley, where I took organic chemistry as my major. And uh, the greatest compliment I had was from a, a fellow by the name of Kason, uh, who was a lecturer there, at, uh, or professor at chemistry. And uh, he said, by the way, he met him in the hall during, the, I guess, the second year of organic chemistry. Um, we're having a, a midterm this coming Tuesday, and you can take it if you want to which I thought was quite a compliment because I was uh, the average on the first midterm was something like 62 points out of 100, and I had 100%. And he <laughs> didn't know exactly why. I mean, I, I, could, I could answer the questions without any problem because they were all in Paul Carr's book, and I had memorized the book. Ah, well, that's, I think, honest. <laughs> Not much. Anyway, uh, that, uh, after that, I got into um, my uh, AB in chemistry at Berkeley, a PhD in biochemistry at Berkeley, got involved in a little laboratory. There are five of us called BioRad Laboratory that's now a multi-million dollar operation. Had I stayed with them, I would have been a very, very rich millionaire with ulcers at this point. And I'm very glad I just I split the scene when there's still only five of us present. Did a little radioactive synthesis in their, in their name. Uh, did some postdoctorate work at Berkeley. Uh, went to Dow Chemical Company, the Dow Chemical Company out with a branch of it there in Pittsburgh near Near the, near the Bay Area in, in California. And um, it's there that I really got initiated into what turned out to be a very important change in my life. I had my first experience with uh, mescaline, about 1960, 1950, 1960, about 45 years ago. Uh, 400 milligrams of the, of the sulfate and had a good babysitter. And I had explored a great deal around various psychoactive drugs. This was supposed to be an erotic thing. That is supposed to be an amnesia thing. Each of these had their own name. I had heard about mescaline. had never tried it. And that one day, that eight or ten hour experience, really changed uh, my life for the next uh, half century. I was totally fascinated with a drug that could get in there, allow you to see things you would not normally see, and yet you knew to be valid. I have a reasonably limited uh, knowledge of colors. Suddenly I saw colors that I had never really appreciated before. I could look at a flower and observe the beauty of a flower. could not open the flower, could not touch it, but I observed the beauty of a flower. I had memories from childhood that I knew were valid, but I had not thought of them for years. It was a very, very delightful uh, experience, but mainly what uh, uh, impressed me most thoroughly is that uh, that experience was clearly not due, the contents of that experience were not in that 400 milligrams of the drug. The drug, what it did, it catalyzed my mind. It got my mind back into that particular area. So I looked upon these materials as being catalytic, not productive. They do not do what occurs. They allow you to express what is in you that you have not had the ability to get to and express uh, yourself without without the help of of a material. 
So this really caught my fancy, and I said, if, if this little 400 milligrams of something could be a, a, an effective catalyst to, relieve, to re- reveal back to me what I had done, what I had seen, and uh, such, there is a great potential here for, uh, for medical use. And that caught me with my little knowledge of chemistry and my intense curiosity as what was going on upstairs in my head as it was revealed by this masculine experience. I really went into uh, a true new direction of chemistry. And here is where I guess I kind of have to wave hands. Um, mescaline is a ring with three methoxy groups out here. Don't worry what a methoxy group is. Someone near you will probably explain it later. A carbon, carbon, and a nitrogen. A very simple molecule. Uh, and I said, you know, if this molecule can be this effective, uh, what other kind of effects could be gotten by similar materials? So the first thing I did was stick a methyl group on down here. So now I now have an amphetamine compound and took it very cautiously. We're talking a lot today already about experiments with with mice and with rats and with um, various animals. In my own case, the only animal I used was was the human animal. I presume this is now a little awkward because of the various uh, national and federal regulations that have come in. But uh, I find that still the human, human animal is the only one that is really effective in evaluating and comparing these various psychedelic materials. And, I, and, and the work I do is still involved in that direction. Um, here's a material that is identical with mescaline. I call it trimethoxyamphetamine, DMA. And, uh, and my golly, it was about twice as potent and totally different in its action. With the mescaline, I had this, this love and sensitivity to a flower that was on my coffee table where I was living. And under the TMA experience, uh, I got very curious about it and tore it apart to see what was inside. Complete change of, of attitude toward, toward something of, of precious beauty. One was uh, an absolute cherishing, uh, uh, sort of a, um, a reverence. And the other was one of dissective, uh, dissecting curiosity. And the activity was twice, so I went ahead and group did that. I put an ethyl, a propyl, a butyl, amyl, put all kinds of different groups on that position. Uh, that's one of the beauty things about having a little bit of fun with the art of chemistry is you can put things on and know where they're going and have ways of determining that their chemistry is going correctly. But the real charming thing and the really, uh, uh, to me, exciting thing was the fact each thing you came up with uh, was a new material. It had never been made before. So you're looking at a, at a white crystalline solid in a, in a little beaker there, uh, and you've never seen it before. No one in the world has seen this before. As far as you know, no one in the universe has seen this before. It's a new, new thing you've just made. And it's never seen you before, so you, in essence, have no, no, no dialogue at all. How much do you start with? How much material do you use as a first experiment on a new chemical that's never been tried before by anyone? Well, obviously, an amount that's small enough that will not have any effect. But how small an amount is that? There was a very interesting additional nuance in this, in this relationship that I developed over a period of time. That You go with great caution, decide what is an amount that would have no effect, and take one thousandth of that amount. It doesn't take much. It takes time. But it doesn't take much more chemicals because you use a thousand up to where you were. You'd use another milligram, perhaps. And so each of these materials had to be uh, learned as an individual new meeting and one of the, the outgrowths that I discovered is that the beauty of your final results of finding out what the, what the effects are, uh, you really can't be wrong. 
because you'll say, I found that this material caused a visual enhancement of that and a recall of memories of this and this and yonder. Anyone else who tries it who finds the same results will say he is right. Anyone who tries it and doesn't get the results is, what did I do wrong? So in essence, you come up with, with a winner uh, <laughs> very nicely. Anyway, what I did, put these on there. The methyl group was twice as active. I put a profile with no activity at all, uh, uh, the alpha, the, uh, alpha ethyl mescaline. And by that time, I had made materials up to the oh, 09 or 10 carbon chain, so I didn't bother trying them. I went back, put stuff on the nitrogen, up here, the nitrogen atom, uh, no, it lost activity entirely. A couple of methyl groups out there, you can go almost a gram and not get any effects. Uh, then you have the ring system. Now, here, here you got really exciting. You have these three methoxy groups sticking out in the ring. If you can imagine a hexagon being held by a two-carbon chain, you have the hexagon out here. You have one, two, three, four. You have five positions. Three of them are occupied methoxies. So here's your, your, your quiz of the day. How many ways can you put three methoxy groups on this six-membered ring? They're different compounds. The answer is six. You can have three, four, five, two, four, five, two, three, four, two, three, five, two, three, six, two, four, six. I can, if I had a side slide, this would be obvious. Anyway, so I, I synthesized the other five compounds. And uh, by golly, the two, four, five was ten times as active. Uh, two, four, six was also very active and very interesting. The other three were absolute duds, nothing, nothing at all. So here, suddenly I now know that you can get much more potency and complexity, more, more stimulation, more eye dilation. Uh, but also psychedelic effects with, say, 245. So now you have a new material, TMA, call, I call it TMA2. Uh, you have three methoxy groups out here in those positions. Try each of them into an ethoxy. Gives you three more compounds, and only the four position was, was sensitive. So suddenly you have a, a position out there that, that gives you more potency. So I put other groups going out that way. And began realizing that the, this is a structure, these are all called phenethylamines, by the way. Uh, this structure is amenable to uh, amplification, complexity increasing if you substitute here but not there. So that's where I go. Uh, we're talking earlier some talk about neurotransmitters. Uh, it occurs to me that in that position with the methoxy group, uh, the methoxy group can metabolize off easily. What about putting a group out there? that it won't metabolize off. Instead of methoxy, put a methyl group out there. So I made the compound 2,5-dimethoxy-4-methylamphetamine. And I said, it's either going to be much more active, because it can't come off and be uh, metabolized easily, and hence I'll have a more active compound, or it will not be active at all, but it will go into the neurotransmitter site that psychedelics go into, and if there's anything to the argument that these are neurologically activating sites and may be activated by people who are uh, with mental illness, you may have a, a therapy for mental illness. You can't lose. So I made the compound, tried it, and it turned out to be quite a bit more potent. Yet, this is a material called DOM, which that, of course, led to a whole new direction. If you have DOM out there, methyl, what about ethyl? Active compound, propyl, active compound. And if it's methyls and the Propyls and so forth, active. Put a bromine out there, active compound. Put an iodine out there, active compound. So the, the thought occurred to me, if you have an alkyl group that that's DOB and DOI, uh, DOM is the one that got off into San Francisco under the name of STP. I don't know if any, if any of you are young enough to know San Francisco in the 60s, but there was a, a, a D, uh, STP, not DNP, STP, I should say, was very active at that time, and it was turned out that I 
found out that it was indeed DOM under another name, STP. Uh, they, they said uh, serenity, tranquility, and placidity was the name for it, and no one knew what placidity was, so it became uh, serenity, tranquility, and peace, which was a little bit more understood, uh, to the police authorities who did not like this idea of this going around. They didn't know what it was. They called it too stupid to puke, which was their counterpart to the, this is the days of the Haight-Ashbury uh, Clinic. And it was, at this time, I was up in the hill in the medical school. And this was going out there and had no idea what STP was. One of my compounds, I talked at a, a media at a uh, conference back in the East Coast, here in the East Coast, about a week or two earlier, and I talked about the material and gave it structure. And I suspect it was just synthesized from this seminar I gave. Anyway, the uh, bromo, the <laughs> funny world, uh, the bromo compound, iodo compound. It occurred to me maybe it is because this alkyl group was active. And you have what's called a, a lipophilicity or, or hydrophobicness, where something likes something that's fatty. And maybe if I put something on there that was water-loving, like a nitro group, it would not be active when it goes into the, into the neurotransmitter uh, receptor site. I put the nitro group active. Well, maybe it likes both it was putting its tail into this receptor site, going to the right that's lipophilic and to the left that's hydrophilic. What if I'm putting a group on that is not philic at all, namely fluorine? So I put on, a, I think it was a trifluoroethyloxy analog, so I felt this would probably not be active at all, also active. So just getting it, the tail of the four-position that molecule into the receptor site produced activity. So from that, the obvious steps were to go and make, take off the methyl group, get away from the amphetamine chain. So I took the methyl group off, and that gave uh, 2CB, then 2CI, a host of other materials in the same ilk that were just a, a, a beautifully rich um, collection of, of compounds, many of them uh, uh, not as potent as the amphetamines, but shorter-lived and much more benign and much more uh, friendly than the corresponding amphetamines. So this is more, then I'll, oh, another thing I, I, somewhere along the line occurred to me, if oxygen does a good job, put a sulfur on there, and you get them now the 2CT family, 2CT2 up to about 2CT25 or so, of which about half of them are active. So this is, the, this is kind of the hand-waving world of synthetic chemistry. I could go on for another 10, 15 minutes and get into tryptamines and go through the same complexities, but you have this as the active position. That is not as active. This is less active. Alkyl groups on tryptamines are much enhancing in, in nature and complexity of action. Alkyl groups, with the exception of MDMA and a couple of others, on the phenethylamines destroys the activity of the phenethylamines. So there are differences between the, these two families of compounds, but those differences are not... Um, Negative, they are just informative. Anyway, that's kind of the picture of where I've been going for a while. I don't want to take too long here. Um, what uh, is, uh, I think, a question has often come up is how is this all going to work out? What are the, the goods and the bads of this entire area of psychedelic chemistry? Basically, the negatives are the terms uh, of many people, from law writers to to uh, people in the street, feel that this is an area of neurotoxicity, uh, an area these materials cause neurological damage, cause people to lose control, commit crimes, and eventually collapse at, after 20 years of, of uh, brain de decomposition, which is, to a large measure, nonsense. However, I can't say completely excluded. I've been into it for 45 years, and I'm having my usual expected amount of brain deterioration. 
But I don't think it's that serious yet, so I hope to have another decade or two of, of reasonable responses. And you have the, the increasing urge to put laws against these, these things because the psychology, the propaganda that they are negative, that they do damage, is very real and very much believed by many people. I've been often asked why use the word psychedelic itself as a pejorative term. I mean, there are empathogens, entheogens, hallucinogens, psychotomimetics, other terms that are used widely in medicine uh, that carry other messages but do not carry the intrinsic negativeness of the term psychedelic. Well, I, my main argument for keep, continuing to use the term is that you, people may not approve of what you're working in or what you're saying, but at least they know what you're talking about. I mean, you stop nine people on Market Street, uh, uh, ten people, nine people, you say, I work with empathogens, when they ask you what you do, they have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, nine people out of ten, when you tell that you're working with psychedelics, would not, maybe not approve, but at least they know what you're working with. So the idea of using a term that is uh, in popular usage, I consider to be quite positive. Huh? Well, my clock is still going. The clock is supposed to go flash three minutes from stopping, and if the clock has stopped. So... I don't know where I am. Uh, let, me, let me wrap things up a little bit. Um, what are the positives? I consider the positives to be the, my main incentive for doing the work I've done for the last half century and continuing to do it now, is I believe in this collection of materials, you're going to develop tools that are going to answer many of the questions that have been brought up today. Namely, how can you find out how the brain works you can use a rat? How does the mind work? What is the... How, what kind of a probe can you make to look at the function of the mind? To me, it's going to be a psychedelic material that has very little action in, in, in experimental animals to look into actions in man that are not seen in experimental animals. Maybe the idea of using these materials as eventual research tools I consider to be extremely, extremely valuable. Uh, the... I think what I'll do, uh, a point came up during lunch today, it brought up an interesting story that I think pretty well puts this into perspective about the need of tools for exploring research, uh, research tools for exploring this area of understanding the function of the mind. Uh, it was Eric this morning was talking about animals being invested with the properties of, of, of uh, uh, schizophrenia. And this was some years ago, back, back in the good old days before there were many inhibitive, inhibitory actions on human studies, uh, FDA approval, disapproval, get clearance from the DEA clearance, from everything like that before you do any human experiments. Your board of your university has to see the research and approve of it. A lot of this experimental work was done back in the, in the Halcyon days when there were no such things as research approval boards. I mean, in Berkeley, we had the run of the place. We, you know, could fire up the psychotron and make an isotope and use it and try it in, in they, they, their argument at, at Donner Labs, that was Donner, then it went up to the, up on the hill in Lawrence Lab, was stay if you want and do whatever you want. The tools are here. Here's a psychotron. Here's your PET scanner. Um, do whatever you want, but just remember, when you leave, turn off the lights and lock the door. And we, we could work through the night there, doing experiments, all kinds of beautiful things. I remember one time, this is kind of, so let me use this as sort of a wind-up. Uh, we had the, uh, this was some, maybe three or four decades ago, it's quite popular opinion that, that uh, methionine was involved with schizophrenia because some experiments had been done in which people who were schizophrenic were given methionine-rich diets and their symptoms became worse. Uh, 
And yet those people who were not diagnosed as schizophrenics with the methionine-rich diet uh, had no changes at all. So we talked about this pros and cons, and it was a neat experiment. What I did, I, I took a, I remember it's S-adenosine methionine or some compound in that area, and I tucked on a fluorine-18, which makes it a, 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 a positron emitter, which means you can go into a PET scanner and put this into a person and put the head of the person, the person attached to the head, Stormy. No, that didn't sound good. You have the person lie down on a little cot with the head going into a positron camera, and you've had a section of the brain just above the earlobes that tells you where that chemical went. Being a positron emitter, it didn't have to have any reaction in the body. It just went where it went. And what we did, this was work done with Tony some, oh, God, years, a few decades ago. Uh, I made this material. In fact, I made 10 batches over a period of time. The half-life of fluorine is a little less than two hours, so you can't make a lot of it and keep it for a while. And he had good friends up at uh, Mendocino Laboratory, uh, Mendocino Hospital, and he came back with five names of five schizophrenic patients who were up at the hospital. And we had their names and the backgrounds of them. And uh, in Lawrence Lab, I managed to find five normal controls. That was a bit more tricky. But <laughs> we did. And uh, ten batches of this, and we did ten experiments. We put the material into the these ten people about a week apart, and in each case, put them into the uh, to the uh, PET scanner. I remember one of the uh, schizophrenics, Tony, had a lot of problems with because he did not like radioactivity. And he said radioactivity is bad. So we had down at Donner a great big uh, sort of a background counter. It's a, a, a big room with a big iodine crystal of 30-some inches in diameter. And uh, walls, three-inch thick lead overhead and side. And Tony very nicely told him, if you go in here and spend a half an hour, he'll give you a magazine, turn the leave the light on. If you go in here and spend a half an hour in here, your body will be so depleted of radiation that when we take you up in the hill and put you in the positive camera, it'll bring you back to normal. You'll be okay. He believed it. <laughs> anyway, the, the, uh, a wrap-up with, with the result of the experiment. It was a fascinating thing. We ran ten studies. And we had ten photographs of the, of the uh, uh, fluorine-18 disposition in the brain. And the ten photographs were absolutely different from one another. There was no consistency through this group at all. And so we put them on the wall of the, of the uh, uh, medical radiation thing up in the hill. And across the back of the wall, every time someone would come in from Washington to give a seminar or come in from somewhere of any importance, we say, by the way, here are ten photographs of the fluorine-18 labeled material we gave. Five of these are schizophrenic patients, and five of them are normals. Which do you think are normals? Which do you think are schizophrenics? And we got absolutely random answers. No, 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 no pattern could be found at all. Then about uh, two months, three months later, one of the schizophrenic patients who liked Tony very much uh, came down to visit and see how everything was going on. Very nice visit. And uh, they were talking for a while. And he saw these, these ten photographs on the wall. And uh, he said, are those the ten pictures you took of us? Tony said, yeah. And he looked at one and said, oh, I know, I reckon that's me. And he pointed to number seven or one of them over there. And he's absolutely right. He identified his own photograph from the PET scan of the distribution of that fluorine 18 thing. And Tony very mildly, casually said, oh, you know, you're right, absolutely right, how do you know? Oh, he said that, you see that little 
sort of star-shaped, uh, shiny thing in the bottom right corner, a little star-shaped thing? Yeah, I see it all the time. <laughs> so, you know, we have a long way to go <laughs> before we really can understand uh, how the mind works, but this is a start. Thank you very much. <laughs> There has been a very uh, recent, uh, quite a bit of increase of use of psychedelics in various therapeutic applications. Uh, the, the study of uh, studies are going on in Los Angeles and one other area, I forget where, of the use of something like psilocybin or uh, uh, MDMA in administering to people who have terminal cancer to alleviate the anxiety of that. These have been quite successful. There have been studies in the... Uh, in the um, post-traumatic syndrome, uh, again, uh, to relieve anxiety. There are uh, probably half a dozen such studies either underway now or uh, in, the, in the machinery of approval to be done. The primary negative of this entire area is the public opinion, the legal status, the general attitude of the authorities that any work with these materials is probably basically evil makes the getting a permission from the authorities, be it, be it health, be it drug authorities, uh, virtually impossible to get. And hence, there will be a long struggle for any of these material, these uh, studies to become real. The funding is no question. The funding is available from many sources. It's the uh, machinery of, of, the, um, of the permission getting that has been difficult. This, I don't see being uh, uh, softened at all until the as has happened in Europe to some extent and more and more, this entire area of research moves from legal control to medical control. And I think that transformation will probably allow many of these studies to be done. And the good news is that here, less than five years since Sasha gave this talk, the amount of research in this field is at long last heating up. Now, after I play this next talk, I'll return to this topic and the good news coming from the recent Psychedelic Science Conference, at which the focus of much of the event was the work of none other than Sasha Shulgin. But first, I want you to hear this uh, Alan Watts talk that was sent to me by Michael H., who also provided the recording of Alan Watts that I played in my podcast. I think it was number 213. So thank you again, Michael. Now, the only information I have on this recording is that the file was named themoreitchanges.mp3. And uh, since we know that Alan Watts died in 1973, we know that this talk was given over 35 years ago. So when you hear his predictions about the future of technology, well, keep in mind that uh, even if he'd given this talk last night, uh, the conclusion he comes to in about uh, seven minutes from now will blow you away. Uh, even if you've heard it before. So when he begins talking about the evolution of technology from painting up uh, up through virtual reality, don't latch on to the details so much, but uh, keep your mind open to hear his conclusion. Well, that should be enough for me. Uh, so let's join Alan Watts and uh, hear what he has in store for us today. We use the word reproduction in two principal ways when we talk about the biological reproduction of the species and when we talk about making a good reproduction of something, 
in terms of a painting, a photograph, or a recording, or a videotape. And what is all this about reproduction in that direction? Hundreds of years ago, kings of Europe who wanted to form feudal alliances by marrying the princesses of far-off states would have painters send portraits of the lady in question to see if his majesty approved of her before he got her. And there's a famous story in which Henry VIII of England was badly cheated in this respect by a too flattering portrait of Anne of Cleves. And therefore there grew up a kind of uh, morale among artists in the European tradition to make faithful reproductions of people. And they perfected their technique, beginning with the marvelous work of the Renaissance painters and the Flemish painters, and going on finally to what was called art officiel in the 19th century, we got what we now call photographic realism. Isn't there some more scientific way of doing this? And so they discovered the camera. And first of all, there were, you know, remember those brownish daguerreotypes? And people said, well, that is pretty. It really looks like Grandpa, doesn't it? And then they said, but uh, something's, uh, there's several things missing. It isn't colored. So first of all, they tinted them. And then they said, well, it's real lifelike. But then they went on to say, but you know, there are some people whose whole style of life, whose personality is in the way they move. And if you just take a static shot like that, the personality isn't there. It's the way they go. So they said, we've got to have some way of making people move. So they invented the movies. And I remember when the first movies came out, they were all going, everybody was going, you know, in a jerky way. Then they smoothed it out and they said, oh, that's real lifelike. But they said then, but there's another thing about reproducing people, which is that um, they talk and a whole lot of their personality is in the voice. So can't we have them talking at the same time that they move? So they invented the talkies. And then to get it more lifelike still, they colored them. They said, wow, now we're really getting somewhere. Then, uh, to make it even more real, they put it in 3D. And you had to wear sort of spectacles over your face to see it that way. But then they went on to say, why is it that every time we want to see one of these things, we have to go down... Uh, to the center of town, can't we have it all at home? And so television came on. And in television, they first of all started out with black and white, and it was kind of uh, like Robert Benchley once described the cuts in French newspapers as all looking as if they'd been made on bread. Well, that was television at a certain period. And then they improved it, and then they colored it, and that's where we are now. Not quite because somebody has come out with the thing that we shall all be seeing soon, which is the hologram. A television image produced by laser beams, where you see a three-dimensional figure out in the air in front of you. I say, isn't that marvelous? Whew. And then, uh, but of course, when you go up to it and you put your hand on it, your hand goes right through it. 
You can't touch it. And you see, that was always the trouble with television. Because you look at whatever you're seeing behind a screen. It's intangible. It doesn't smell. And it won't relate to you. So these are further problems to be solved in the techniques of electronic reproduction. And they'll do it. They'll first of all manage a way in which the electronic emission sources can solidify and make the air vibrate so that you go up and you'll touch the figure and you won't be able to push your hand through it because the air will be going faster than your hand. Imagine that. You can actually, if there's a beautiful dancer on the television, you'll be able to go up and embrace her. But she won't know you're there. And she won't respond to you. And you'll say, well, that's not very lifelike. Just as they once said, uh, if the photograph doesn't move, it's not very lifelike. If it doesn't talk, it's not very lifelike. They'll next say, if the reproduction in three dimensions solid doesn't respond, it's not very lifelike. So they'll have to figure out a technique for doing that. What will they do? Well, I tell you, sitting in your home, where you're watching the scene on a kind of stage now, not on a screen, there'll be a TV camera observing you. And that TV camera will report back everything you do into a computer. And the computer will so manage each bit of information, that's to say, each tiny little um, granule unit of information going into the image that you're looking at, that it will immediately decide what is the appropriate response to the approach that you are making to the image. Won't that be crazy? You know, she may slap you in the face and she may kiss you. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but then, they say, now, this is still not really the kind of reproduction we wanted. What we wanted when we looked at the scene is to be able to identify with one of the characters. We wanted to not just watch the drama that's being performed on the stage in front of us, but actually get into it. And so we want to be wired in with electro, um, electrodes on the brain so that we will actually feel the emotions of the people acting on the stage. And so eventually we will get absolutely perfect reproduction. And we will be able to see that image so vividly that we shall become it. And so the question arises. Could that be where we are already? Are we a reproduction? Which over the centuries of evolution has worked out to be a replica of something else that was going on? And we are where we always were? Now, the next fantasy concerns the idea that every living being thinks it's human. And that means a plant, a worm, a virus, a bacterium, a fruit fly, a hippopotamus, a giraffe, a rabbit that all these beings, wherever they feel out from, as we feel out from our bodies, feel that they're in the middle. That is to say, wherever you look, you turn your head around, and you feel you're in the middle of the world. You feel you're, you're the center. 
and a rabbit or a fruit fly feels that it is a center. And it has around it a company of associates who look like it. And therefore, this creature knows that these are the right people, just as we know when we look at human beings. Uh, they're the right people. They are one of us. Only, of course, we have to make distinctions because you never really know uh, that you are you and yet you are really in the right place unless you can contrast yourself with some other people who are, after all, not quite in the right place and some other people who are very much in the wrong place. <laughs> and then, through having this succession of comparisons, you know that you're okay. Well, the insect has exactly the same arrangement. Well, you say, well, insects and, and things like fishes, uh, they don't have any culture. What do you mean, fishes being civilized and being entitled to consider themselves as humans? Well, let me put the argument from the fish's point of view. <laughs> fishes say, human beings are a mess. Look what they do. They, they can't exist without cluttering themselves and carrying around all kinds of things outside their bodies. They have to have houses and automobiles and books, books and records and television and hi-fi equipment and stuff, endless stuff, and they litter the earth with rubbish. Just think of a dolphin. He isn't really a fish because a dolphin's a mammal, but a dolphin's point of view towards the human race. Dolphins spend most of their time playing. They don't work because the grocery is right there in the ocean, whatever they need. And so a dolphin will uh, catch up with a seagoing liner and it'll get on the wake of the liner and put its tail at an exact angle of 26 degrees. And in so doing, the liner will carry the dolphin along. The dolphin will make circles around the liner just for fun, playing all its life in the water. And uh, we know that a dolphin's brain is as big, if not bigger than ours, that it's incredibly intelligent, that it has a language which we can't decipher. And the person who knows most about dolphins in the United States, Dr. John Lilly, is a friend of mine, and he said he came to the conclusion that dolphins were too smart to tell us their language. So he abandoned this project. He said he would no longer keep such a highly civilized being in the concentration camp of the zoo and that it should go back to the ocean. So the point is, though, that every, not only dolphins, but every organism that has any sensitivity in it whatsoever considers itself to be the center of the universe. Now, it has its problems. There's a... Zen poem which says the morning glory which blooms for an hour differs not at heart from a giant pine that lives for a thousand years in other words an hour is a long life to a morning glory a thousand years is a long life to a pine and our four score years and ten or as the insurance companies actuarial tables put it somewhere between 65 and 70 years as an average human life seems about the right length of life I mean there are people who want to go on and on and uh, are in quest of immortality and have their bodies frozen in case there should develop in the future some technique by which they could be revived but I I really don't go for that idea because 
nature has mercifully arranged the principle of forgettery as well as the principle of memory. If you always and always and always remembered everything, you see, you would be like a piece of paper which had been painted over and painted over and painted over until there was no space left and you wouldn't be able to distinguish between one thing and another. It's like when a whole bunch of people start to scream and make noises and outscream each other and soon you can hear nobody. So in that way one's memories become screams and nature mercifully arranges that the whole thing be erased and you begin again. You see, it doesn't matter in what form you begin, whether you begin again as a human being or as a fruit fly, a butterfly, or a beetle, or a bird, it, it feels the same way that you feel now. So we're really all in the same place. And we all have above us things much higher than ourselves. And we all have below us things that we feel are much lower than ourselves, just as there are things out there on the left and things out there on the right, and things in front and things behind. Because you're the middle. You're the middle everywhere, always. And now my third fantasy. Nobody has, it seems to me, really seriously asked the question, how do stars begin? Why, how out of space do these enormous radioactive centers arise? Well, I'm going to solve this problem on the principle of the egg and the hen. Because it is said, a chicken is one egg's way of becoming other eggs. And if you've understood my second fantasy, you will see how that could be true. Now let's suppose then that a planet is one star's way of becoming another star. You know, stars, when they explode, they send a lot of uh, goo out into space. And some of this goo solidifies into balls which get in orbit and spin around the star. And in one chance in a thousand, maybe, one of those balls will become like the planet Earth. And slowly upon it will arise what some people might call a disease called uh, the bacteria of intelligent life. And they have a notion, these things that we call a lie, that they ought to go on. They, you know, they have a fixed idea in their heads that they should keep on doing whatever it is they're doing. And they should always be doing it better. So they divide themselves into different species. And these species compete with each other in order to, uh, as it were, flex their muscles and get better and better at whatever it is they are. And they go on doing this until one species really establishes itself as top species in the particular area on the particular planet. As we human beings, Homo sapiens, have established ourselves as top species on Earth. Whatever top means. Well then, when we have a little leisure and don't have to spend all our time uh, finding food to put into our mouths, we start asking questions. And we look around at each other and everything and say, what is this? I mean, what's going on here? 
Well, some people say, that's a stupid question to ask. Why don't you just go on doing your work? Go hunting, go farming, go doing your business. They say, no, there are higher things. And so they create a special class of people who are in India called Brahmins, among us, philosophers, scientists, theologians, thinkers. And they go into this question. And they're allowed uh, to stop farming, to stop hunting, to stop mining, to stop uh, scrubbing floors, and to go to very special places called universities, where they can sit around and think about what is going on. Now, they think about this. First of all, they do what they call philosophy, which is they try to say um, what it means, with, what, what does the word be, what does the word exist mean? What do we mean when we say we're here? Well, they find they can't discuss that very far because um, the word stops meaning anything. It sort of becomes a noise. They say, no, we're not really getting to the point. What we've got to do is instead of thinking all the time and just theorizing and talking words about what's going on, we've got to investigate it experimentally. We've somehow got to look into this stuff that we call reality, a material world, and find out what it is. So they start chopping it up. See? They go into flowers and they chop up the seeds and they look into the middle of the seeds. They find something there and then they have to get a magnifying glass and look in on that and get smaller and smaller and smaller. And they, they reason they must eventually come to some particle called an atom. In Greek, atom means atomos, non-cuttable, what you can't split any further. So they come down to the atomos, that than which there is no witcher, they thought. But then they found they could split that atom. They could find the electron, the positron, the meson, etc., 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 forever. And so uh, they said, well, this is, I mean, this is uh, a real science because uh, we, 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 we've now found out uh, that every atomos of matter contains immense energy and that we could come to the point where we could release the energy in the atom. And the trouble with intellectual people is that anything that can be done must be done. And so eventually, in the necessary course of the development of nature, they found out how to blow the earth to pieces and turn it into a star. So uh, that may be, you see, how stars originate. They have planets, like uh, chickens have eggs, and the eggs burst and turn into chickens. And planets burst through the agency of intelligent life and turn into stars, which throw out other mud balls, which are, some of which stand a reasonable chance, about as reasonable a chance as, say, any male spermatozoan stands when it enters the female womb of becoming a baby. One in a million. And those spermatozoa are in exactly the same position as the planets and the stars. Now, I tell you, this is a fantasy. But you may ask me, isn't it a rather unpleasant fantasy? Aren't things going the wrong way, the wrong direction? In other words, if um, the whole point of life, I mean, this tender biological substance with all its tubes and filaments and nerves, which is so very sensitive, 
if all this is to end up in fire, into an absolute blaze of light, don't we say, oh, what a shame. You don't, is that the way it ends? But so many people say that they want to see the light. They want to be enlightened. They want to dissolve into the light of God. And then when they've done that, all over again the process goes on and it blows out those mud balls. And here are planets. And here once again, you're a baby, you're a child, the flowers are brilliantly colored, the stars are gorgeous, the smell of the earth, the sound of the rain, everything is marvelous once again. And once again you see the other, the man, the woman that you love. As if it had never happened before, it all starts over again. And as it goes on, it gets more and more intense, all the problems get more and more problematic. You find you're wrestling with something you can't control. You've got to control it, but you absolutely can't control it. Like all the problems of the world at the present time, the, the whole scene is completely out of hand. And we feel we're going to our doom. Because we're going once again towards the birth of a star, which is the most creative thing there is. Now, if you think about this for a while, you see, well, I've put forward three fantasies, all of which have a cyclic quality. We reproduce, not only biologically, but we reproduce artistically, technically. Just for a moment, I want to put in an aside about biological reproduction. See, when I think back, to my grandfather, whom I knew fairly well. He was, uh, when I was a little boy, he was something extraordinarily impressive. He looked like King Edward VII. He was a very, very elegant man. With a little goatee beard, he didn't have sideburns like this, and he had shorter hair, but he was a very elegant fellow, dressed beautifully. And I thought, you know, he was the very image of God. And now here I am, the same age as he was when I first knew him. And I have five grandchildren. And I'm sort of <laughs> no longer impressed by grandfathers. <laughs> I know. Here I am. I'm one of them too. And this is the same idea, you see, of the round. That we are almost... Uh, uh, perpetually in the same place as the French proverb says plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose the more it changes, the more it's the same thing well that means then you see that existence the feeling of being is a sort of spectrum just as light is at one end red and at the other end violet. 
And you have to have these extremes in order to have color at all, in order to know light. So you see, uh, likewise, we, we have to have the experience that there is somebody else, something else going on altogether out of our control in order to have the experience of being me. And so in order to feel good, to feel that um, well, life is worthwhile, that existence is, is worth going on with, in order to bring out that feeling, just as the red brings out the violet, there has to be in the back of our minds, maybe very far away, the comprehension that there is something that could happen that absolutely mustn't happen that is the horrors, that is the screaming memes at the end of the line. We have to know that's there. And every so often, that has to happen. Because if there isn't the experience that we go through called the screaming memes at the end of the line, where everything has gone wrong, like uh, just before he died, the British novelist Arnold Bennett said, I feel somehow that everything's absolutely wrong. You know? So the, 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 the possibility, even the, the imagination that there could be such an experience in the back of our heads is the background which gives intensity to the sense that we call feeling good, feeling that it's, it's all right. It's all right now, I'm only bleeding. So, if you understand that, you see that really and truly you're always in the same place. Just as every creature thinks it's a human being. And as just every being turns out to be a reproduction by some interesting technology, whether it's electronic or biological, makes very little difference. And just as it may be, I don't know, planets are stars' ways of becoming other stars, and so on, and so on, and so on. But the moral is, you're always in the same place. And what is that place? You can ask yourself very, very, I won't say seriously, because this isn't really serious, it's sincere. Ask yourself very sincerely, if that is so, if in other words, the place in which you are now is the place where everything and everybody else really is. Only there's an arrangement to pretend that you ought to be somewhere else. <laughs> so the place where you are is the place where you're always pretending you ought to be somewhere else. And this is the nature of life. This is the pulse. I ought to be somewhere else. So it's a kind of a, a gazoom like that. See? And if you discover that that's the trick that you're playing on yourself, you become serene. And you uh, don't entirely give up the game because uh, you've seen through it that you say, hmm, it really might be fun to go on playing. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, to tell you the truth, I'm not really sure what to say after listening to that Alan Watts piece just now. I guess I'm going to have to hear it one more time to really grok that ending. 
I have to admit that even though I probably couldn't accurately repeat what he said just now, uh, it sure did sound good to me. <laughs> so uh, instead of any comments about Alan Watts, uh, instead I'd like to say a word or two about the lady behind that beautiful silken voice you hear after each week's talk here in the salon. And unless you are new here, you know that that is the one and only Black Beauty, who is also the host of the BB's Bungalow podcast over on the Cannabis Podcast Network at dopefiend.co.uk. And uh, comes to you from down under and is uh, definitely a podcast I look to. It comes out once a month and I can't recommend it enough. And it was in her latest program, uh, number 32, I think it is, that I heard her read an email that she received from someone who is also a fellow saloner. I think he calls himself the Traveling Hippie. And uh, what he had to say touched me very deeply. So uh, I want you to know, Traveling Hippie, that uh, I'm with you 100%. The decision you made, I'm sure, was not very easy for you to come to. But I, for one, not only applaud your action, uh, I think it was in the realm that I personally regard as heroic. It's good to know that you're out there, uh, traveling around and spreading a positive vibe about life. And while you may sometimes feel a little lonely out there, uh, I want you to know that you have tens of thousands of friends here in cyberdelic space, and we're all on your side. So travel on, brave soul, travel on. Now, there is one more thing I need to cover, but I'm not exactly sure what to say. You see, uh, a few days ago, my email client crashed, and I lost all of the to-be-answered emails in my inbox. I think there were around 84 of them. <laughs> and uh, quite a few had files attached, like the uh, ayahuasca talks that Francis sent me from Peru after returning home from the Psychedelic Science Conference a couple weeks ago. Well, Francis uh, and all of our other saloners whose email was eaten by my PC, I'm afraid that if I haven't responded to you in the past several months, it means that your message was also one that was lost. But here's why I don't know exactly what to say about it. You know, a, a few years ago, I would have been uh, really depressed with a crash like that, uh, where I had no way of recording uh, or recovering even the names of those whose uh, email disappeared on me. But uh, this time, it didn't seem to upset me very much at all. In fact, uh, and I'm not proud to admit this, uh, but it felt like a big weight was lifted off me because I no longer feel guilty about uh, not answering all of those wonderful messages. Yeah, it isn't that I don't love you and want to stay in touch, but uh, right now my new book is more or less uh, taking over all my time. And even though I wasn't uh, getting around to even answering those emails very quickly, uh, now uh, there's no pressure on me from them at all. And I feel as if I've got more time to work on my book. <laughs> of course, uh, now I've got to overcome my concern about the uh, dozens of messages waiting for me on Facebook and over at thegrowreport.com where, uh, by the way, you'll find uh, one of the greatest collections of tribe members that there is. In fact, uh, one of my main incentives for finishing this new book quickly is so I can spend more time over in the Grow Reports forums, uh, where I've learned about as much about life as I have from some of these podcasts. Uh, it's a really great community, and I hope you have the time to avail yourself of it every once in a while, and don't just lurk there like I've been doing lately. Uh, get involved with this interesting and fun-loving community, it's a, a great place to start if you find yourself uh, way out on the far edge with no one nearby to talk to. Now, uh, once again, I find myself wearing out before I've talked about the Psychedelic Science Conference that Rick Doblin produced in San Jose last month. 
And as you know, uh, if you've been here a while, uh, I have had my differences with maps, but it was only one difference, to be honest, and so I thought that it was about time for me to grow up a bit and acknowledge the important work that Rick Doblin has done over an exceptionally long and uh, often lonely time, I'm sure. We're uh, coming up on the 20th anniversary of the founding of MAPS, but uh, Rick and I go back even before then. And uh, when I first became aware of him, it was uh, through the publicity he was raising about the importance of MDMA. And he was uh, one of the lone voices in the wilderness back then. Now, as we uh, just heard Sasha Shulgin say uh, at a talk he gave in 2005, he remained hopeful that uh, one day psychedelic research would begin again in earnest. And uh, while this is not quite yet the case, the conference that Rick just produced did a great deal to move that dream significantly closer to reality, uh, mainly by moving the discussion of this work squarely back into the mainstream. Now, when I was complimenting Rick the other night on the impressive number of researchers and scholars that he brought together for the conference, he also told me that he's uh, planning to podcast all of the talks from the conference. And uh, after meeting with the young man who will be responsible for doing all that podcasting work, I feel confident that over time we'll get to hear most everything that was said in the lectures. Also, uh, and I think I mentioned this before, uh, I saw Jan Irvin there uh, doing some recording for his Gnostic Media podcast. And uh, Mad Dog was there doing some recording for Pothead's Coffee Shop over on the dopefiend.co.uk network. So uh, check out some of those other podcasts to uh, get a full picture of the presentations that were given at that conference. For me, uh, though, the highlight of the conference was seeing old friends and meeting new ones. I simply can't thank the Arrowhead crew enough for making me feel at home, and while I thought about just reading off a list of the names of all the old friends and new fellow saloners that I met there, I realized that the list is uh, too long. And uh, on top of that, quite a few fellow saloners just came by and waved uh, without me getting a chance to catch their names. So I'll restrict myself to uh, just one short story about uh, some old friends who were there. About, uh, oh, this must have been about eight years ago, thanks to Bruce Damer. I had access to some secure voice software that worked over the net. And uh, this was before Skype came to life. So I set up a little website that I called the Psychedelic Salon. And once a week for several years, five of us would uh, meet online in Talkspace and uh, carry on a long conversation that we began in Palenque several years before. Eventually our circumstances changed and our weekly meetings online died. But uh, then podcasting came along, and so I revived the Psychedelic Salon, and here we are today. Now, the reason I'm telling you this story is because until the recent Psychedelic Science Conference, the five of us had never all been together in the same physical location since 1999. Unfortunately, uh, one of our core group couldn't make it to the conference, but uh, four of us were there, uh, together again in one sense, but together as the founders of the Psychedelic Salon for the very first time. My point being that uh, even though you and I and the rest of our fellow saloners are scattered all over the place, it doesn't mean that we don't remain deeply connected here in cyberdelic space uh, in some kind of a strange way that our non-tribe friends uh, really can't understand. So, Don, we missed you, and Tom, Steve, and Bill, wow, it sure was good being together with you once again. And for creating that opportunity for us, uh, I want to again thank Rick Doblin. Uh, for that and for his tireless work, particularly in the face of sometimes grumpy old friends like me. 
Well, that should do it for now. And uh, so I'll close today's podcast by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And if you're interested in the philosophy behind the Psychedelic Salon, you can hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. It is the impossible become possible, and yet remaining impossible.